0: Hello and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Roos, founder and CEO of The Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of The Financial Brand. On today's podcast, we'll be discussing the leadership and cultural changes that are required to respond to a new business paradigm. How can leaders make better decisions at a time of digital disruption, embracing change, taking risks and leveraging technology in partnership with humans for a better consumer experience? I had a pleasure seeing Mike speak recently, and his ability to put together the core principles of personal transformation that are needed for the future was both exciting and a bit unnerving. In this episode, Mike will discuss digital transformation, the keys to algorithmic leadership, and the future of work. So today I'm with Mike Walsh. He's the futurist and author of the new book, the algorithmic leader, and my desire to have Mike on the show. I, I was lucky enough to see Mike speak a couple months ago, and and it was so interesting because as we were thinking about this podcast that we're doing, we realized that really a lot of what we're talking about is the need to change leadership and culture, that it's not – digital transformation isn't just a technology thing. Mike, you know, in your book, you, you make it very clear that – really the shift that we have in the the digital world today really has to do as much with people, processes, and cultures as it does with the technology we put in place. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Absolutely, and it's wonderful to be on your show, Jim. Uh, You know, we've had lots of conversations together, so it's good that we can actually share one with everyone. And, um, you know, I think you're exactly right. Uh, You know, digital transformation is actually such an awkward and confusing phrase. And it often creates the, the illusion that it's something you can buy and you can install and essentially upgrade to. And if it was only that simple, I mean, the biggest problem is, is that you can spend a fortune you know, upgrading your core if you're a bank or moving all of your systems to the cloud or embracing automation or artificial intelligence or machine learning to uh, analyze your data. You can do all of that, but it won't profoundly change who you are and how you do things. Uh, because I often like to say that technology is essentially the hardware of your business, but if you really want to transform, you've got to figure out how to make culture your operating system. And this is culture in the sense of how your people do things, how they solve problems, how they make decisions. It's the heuristics of you know the way people approach situations. And it's unfortunately the very thing you can't buy or copy. It's
0: something you have to build for yourself. You know, you talk about the need to truly integrate the human and the technology aspects of things. And if leaders are looking to disrupt themselves and move from their traditional mindset to the new mindset, it's not just about understanding technology and data. It's more than that, right? Absolutely. And, and, and you know, in
1: fairness, this is something we've studied for a long time. I mean, if you think about one of the uh, original classics in this space, the innovator's dilemma, I mean, at its core was this idea that Once you've achieved success in one aspect, it's hard for you to reframe situations and opportunities using a new lens. And technology, and in particular, algorithms, data, artificial intelligence, are exactly that. They're a new lens. And so almost on a daily basis, leaders have to be asking themselves, what can we now do that we couldn't do before? What should be our organizational structure now that we have these new tools available to us and platforms? Uh, what is the smart way to actually get leverage or create value given the new environment and, and to an extent the new age that we now find ourselves in? And that kind of moving frontier of what people can do and what machines can and should do is something that uh, we're going to see a dramatic acceleration of change around.
0: So when we look at leadership, um, the banking industry is probably one of the best examples of how people move up the ladder in traditional sense. And I look back on my banking career, and and I realize that most leaders today in the banking world probably started at the very bottom of an organization, a bank, probably 1970s, 1980s. And they've moved up the ladder, but they've moved up the ladder as bankers. They've moved up the ladder as traditional mindset. The business model hasn't changed a whole lot the way we try to serve customer needs of products that everything's been kind of stable. On top of that, we have not had problems with revenues. So there's not really any pain except in, yeah. in the 2008 period. How does a leader that has what they've known forever even embrace what needs to be done in the future? I, I think that
1: banking has enjoyed a long period of fairly normal growth, you know, like without dramatic changes to its business model. But but there's no doubt that pain has now started. I mean, if you look, you know, even in the last few months about some of the dramatic reorganizations and job losses being announced, especially by European operations, I mean, you've got 18,000 jobs at Deutsche, uh, 10,000 jobs at HSBC. And, you know, this isn't just a reflection of low interest rates and global uncertainty. It's It's also the impact of automation and technology on equities and trading desks and the whole sort of back-end operations about how banking is done. So, if you're a leader at a bank today or or any financial institution, there's no doubt that it's top of mind that there are some big social and technological challenges on on your horizon. The question you now face is, is is this something that can be solved merely using the tools of the last 50 years, which is You know, if we have too much costs, cut people. Or do we need a more profound and philosophical
0: change in the way we see opportunities and design our organizations? So when we look at that, you know, really, and your book makes it very clear that you have to take on a whole new mindset. You have to embrace some new principles. Yeah. You talk about 10 principles that leaders have to kind of understand and embrace. Can you talk a little bit about those principles?
1: Yeah. I mean, in broad terms, I try to draw a line of distinction between what I call leaders designed and born in an analog era versus one of an algorithmic age. And that's really how I would characterize these times in now. And when I say algorithmic, I mean, it's not just AI, but it's really the fact that so much of the way we build intelligence and automation and systems now is, is really baked into code. And you know what? What to me makes algorithmic leaders different is that they're found in accommodation with this new world. So when they make decisions or solve problems or lead people, it's always in the context of what's the smart thing for a human to do versus what a machine should and can. do. So I've I've kind of broken this down into ten principles. Um, some of them sound a bit abstract. Some of them make sense immediately. But they're things like aim for ten x rather than ten percent being able to embrace uncertainty, design work, automate and elevate, solve for purpose, not just for profit. And I'll let your readers go and, and check the rest of those out online. But what really unites them is the fact that we're now in a time when the old models that were relevant in the analog era, which is working hard and charisma and strength and being out front and being seen to be a great sales leader. I mean, all the stuff that we used to G people up at conferences around, around values and mindset, kind of like football coaches, this just doesn't work in a time when sometimes the best decision that you can make is not making a decision at all. Or sometimes the best job you can do is realizing you have to destroy your own job. Or the best work you can do is actually realizing that you're better off not working at all, but designing a framework or a system or a model to essentially take over what you do. And that's a it's a challenging and frightening lesson, I think, for leaders, because it sometimes means stepping back from taking an active role and realizing that you're just part of an interconnected whole.
0: Well, that in mind, you know, one of the things you mentioned was the the big idea, the 10x idea, and truly looking at revolutionary change as opposed to evolutionary change. And I compare it to the fast follower versus the innovator. But how do you embrace that? You mentioned in the book about how Baidu and the, the big idea and found the 10X idea. How do you work with leadership when they've usually done incremental change to really understand yeah. this is a winner-take-all proposition? Well, you know, when people talk about digital
1: transformation, you've got to look closely because often they're talking about digital incrementalism. So they're using robotic process automation or some kind of new system, which essentially saves 10% or 15% off costs or a slight bump in revenue. And this is not true transformation, because to really get that transformative moment, whether it's to your cost base or to, and this is critical, to the experiences that you create for your customers, you've got to ask yourself, what is something that we couldn't do before, that we can now do in this particular moment in time, leveraging new technologies and new ways of working and new business models. And if you don't have a satisfactory answer to that question, you're not thinking big enough. So I'll give you an example. Mass mutual. I mean, if you look at the insurance industry, despite it being a very conservative and, and slow-moving industry, there are a number of players in that market now who are at that crossroads of digital transformation versus digital incrementalism. So, on the incrementalism side, you've got insurers upgrading their servers and using RPA and automating some of their claims processes. Then you've got companies like Mass Mutual, you know, who ask themselves, okay, what's the bigger idea here? So, in life insurance, one of the big pain points for consumers is having to go to a doctor and give fluids in order to buy a policy. So, they created a new company called Haven Life. They had 100 employees initially. of them were data scientists. And their secret weapon um, was that they were able to go back and look at 15 years of data that the parent company had and analyze it with their algorithms. And in doing that, they were then able to do something that people thought was impossible, which is sell life insurance online without fluids. And that's an example of an idea that simply wasn't possible before. But it's also an example of leadership looking for the bigger opportunity.
0: So, you know, when we talk that, about that bigger opportunity, when you talk again about the algorithmic leader, I was sitting down with a person who works for Side a General, and she said – she had some leader come up and said, you know, how can you give me a crash course on AI and digital transformation? <laughs> she, she laughed and goes, you know, it's not like you can just learn it. You not only have to learn it, you have to feel it, but when you're talking about legacy organizations – What do you suggest from the standpoint of bringing together new teams, and how do you change the mindset of people that are really comfortable right now, and how can you maybe integrate possibly new people, new thought leaders, uh, maybe change the organization uh, from the bottom up?
1: The best place to start, whether you're a new or an existing organization, is to change the language of making decisions. And what I mean by that is you've really got to figure out how to become data-driven, and sometimes when I say data driven, people go, Oh, we've been using data for years. And what they're actually doing is, is that in meetings, they'll go and they'll collect their own version of the data and try to use that to persuade everyone that they're right. And that's not really about being data driven. Being data driven means that data becomes the framework for which you discuss and you analyze opportunities. And part of that is, is learning to be more probabilistic, right? So, you know, one of the interesting leadership principles at Amazon is disagree and commit which is a really fascinating one. Because if you look at it, what Jeff Bezos is saying is, look, in many cases, he or other leaders might disagree with an idea that their team brings forward. But rather than that team wasting time trying to convince that leader, that leader should commit to the decision, even though they disagree, and then they should collect data to see if it's correct or not. And so, in other words, it allows you to course correct but still take action quickly. And that's a kind of a nuanced example of what it really means to be data-driven. It's about embracing uncertainty, taking almost a Bayesian approach to the way you analyze probability and the likelihood of success, and finding a neutral way without politics to be able to
0: analyze seemingly crazy ideas that might come from anywhere. Well, it's interesting because, you know, you look at the old way of using data. In an analog world, you pretty much, if this, then this. And a lot of times you end up Uh, using data for your own reports as opposed to the consumer experience. But you talk in your book about the fact that the need to look at data in a whole new way and anticipatory design. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, you know, uh, sometimes we think the state of the art is giving people exactly
1: what they want as quickly as possible. But to me, this is actually a sign of design failure, because if someone has to ask, it's already too late. The real secret of AI-powered experiences in the future, and I call them algorithmic experiences, is when your whole life feels like it's orchestrated for you without you noticing. I mean, so many things go on in our lives without us paying attention to until they break Uh, electricity and water. And part of a technology's success is when it disappears, when it just sort of fades into the background and no longer becomes important or meaningful to us. It's like when telephones first came in and you picked them up and all the dial tone you could use them. You didn't have to talk to an operator or a switch. They just started to work. And I think that's where we're going to next with algorithmic design. It's trying to anticipate people's needs based on data and their behavior and feedback systems and use that to orchestrate better experiences that are
0: more seamless and frictionless and delightful. Well, you talk about the fact that you could end up with banking not really being banking, just something that becomes part of your life and that complete organizations could be created that can't even be thought of today. But they're using anticipatory design to say, let me do this within your life in a way that is, again, figuring out what you'll need next before you even know it. Well, if you think about
1: it on a daily basis, or it's certainly a key life stage there are things that occur that would require some kind of banking service. But at the moment, what has to happen is that the consumer has to essentially change their behavior, try to figure out a banking mental decision model in order to cross that threshold. So whether this is getting a loan or planning for the future with savings or applying for a mortgage or even paying for something, essentially you've got an organizational or legal structure that came from an institution that then forces a consumer to jump through hoops, many of which are not transparent. And if they skip any steps or don't do something exactly right, they basically go into a bucket where they're being penalized. So much more effective is if a bank or some sort of next generation financial intermediary find a way to leverage data and algorithmic design to insert themselves into various parts of someone's life without them even really fully being aware of it. That's when you start to build a very deep and integrated and symbiotic relationship with the consumer of the future. And payments is, is one area where we've started to see little bits of that.
0: Yeah, and you talk about it, and it's shifting a little bit here. You talk in your book in the second section, the change of work overall. And the future of work is is an area that I think leaders in today's marketplace, doesn't matter what industry, have got a real challenge on their hand because What's going to happen is jobs are changing. Automation is completely changing the elements of work that we've looked at in the past. How do you see the future work happening, and what are the impacts, both positive and negative, that you see on the horizon?
1: Well, it's the right question to ask because at some
0: point, the question of whether robots
1: are coming for our jobs is, is not really an interesting discussion because the real question is not will we lose jobs, but how will jobs change? I and mean, even when the computer age began— it wasn't that computers took jobs away from people. People with computers took work away from people that were unable or not prepared to use them. So the new shape of jobs, it can really start to be glimpsed when you ask yourself, how does computational algorithms or data change the performance of this function? So we're gonna see, you know, and we already do see, you know, algorithmic or computational accountants, computational architects, computational lawyers got help us. But what these are, are the same job or profession, but enhanced or augmented with the use of machine intelligence. And it shifts the boundary of what humans do, because like I mentioned before, sometimes rather than nurturing someone with many years of experience so they can make a good decision or recognize a pattern, you're basically saying your job now is not actually to make the decision, it's to design or tune or train the model that's actually making the decision on your behalf. So it's a new type of relationship that you have. And it's, in many cases, a much more difficult and cognitively demanding job. But it's also something that is more purpose-driven,
0: more meaningful, and more interesting than simply doing things the same way all the time. Well, the challenge, though, is also going to be, I was in Cape Town uh, a few weeks ago, and there was a protest scheduled of bank employees that were going to actually protest and shut down the banking system because... They either had lost jobs or in the process of losing jobs. What role does the leader have now? Because one of the future issues are going to be the lack of being able to find skilled workforce in the area where we're going to. What is the role of the leader and of an organization in training and upskilling the people that instead of just letting them go because we don't really have the replacement, what is their role now?
1: We have to fight this war on two fronts. Absolutely, in terms of the existing workforce. We have to have a dramatic acceleration of tactical training around these new tools, these new mindsets, these new ways of thinking and making decisions. So that's something that has to happen immediately. And sort of aligned to that is career planning. So, you know, you're seeing big organizations now um, like Verizon and uh, AT&T, you know, in telecommunications who are building very sophisticated programs for mapping new skills, for migrating people into new roles to offer voluntary redundancies for the people who don't want to make those transitions want to go do something else. But that needs to be done at scale. And then the other front that we have to fight this war on, of course, is education. As you say, there's a huge gap in skills, but there's also a gap in the kind of things we're teaching the next generation. There's no point teaching kids how to use social media. They know it better than us. There's also not as much point as you might think in teaching kids how to program because languages change all the time what you want to do is teach kids computational thinking which is really a, an approach to solving problems and seeing the world that will help you whether you want to be a programmer or you want to be an artist uh, an architect or a trader so it's really about rethinking the whole cognitive models of what it is to be a you know an accomplished human being in the 21st century
0: you know and your and your final section and it's such an important section is becoming I was just at in an innovation conference with financial institutions, and it was amazing how last year the whole concept of, of sustainability and socially conscious behavior really wasn't as high up on the ladder, ladder of what they were talking about. But, you know, in your section of the book that talks about change the world, you really talk about solve for purpose, not for profits. Can you talk a little bit about that and how it relates to the leadership algorithmic leader?
1: Yeah, and I, in a real sense, I mean that in a different way than people often talk about purpose. People often talk about purpose with a capital P, and it's kind of comedic to be honest, because you'll see a, a kind of a very basic industrial goods company who now is talking about saving the world because they're making a, a rubber seal, and because someone down the lines told them people keep millennials happy, you've got to give them a world-changing purpose. Not every company has to save the world or solve climate change or end world hunger in order to be meaningful. But what you do need to do is you need to make sure that you're designing work and jobs and careers that fulfill the small P purpose. In other words, you feel that the work you do is meaningful. It's very easy to take a kind of a virtual assembly line to work, you know, to break a task into tiny little pieces, uh, farm it out, and then you know have these monolithic projects that take so long to deliver that... You can end up working on this for years and never see the result of your labor. That's incredibly demotivating, especially if you combine it with a kind of a, a neo taylorist approach of quantifying exactly what people are doing and measuring them and using algorithms to essentially manage their performance. You know, one of the most interesting case studies in this area is ING Bank. Um, I spoke to their former CIO, Peter Jacobs, for this book, and he told me one of the reasons why they Reorganised the bank using agile principles into tribes and squads, a bit like Spotify, it was not just for efficiency or because it was more agile. It's because it allowed them to give the new young talent the greatest visibility into the delivery of their projects. It allowed them to bring more purpose back to what they do, the sense of craftsmanship, that rather than working on a tiny piece of a giant project, you'd have more authority and influence on a smaller project, which you could actually then deliver. So these are the kind of tactical changes to the future work that often don't get talked about, but will have an immense impact on people's well-being and the
0: extent that they enjoy their work. So, Mike, we could go on and on, and I really appreciate you being on our show, and I love your message. As I mentioned to you before the broadcast, I not only have read your book, but I uh, was able to listen to the audio tape, audio book on the way back and forth to Europe in the last week, and, and it's, it's really a, a lesson plan without a point-by-point description of what to do, but it's a lesson plan as to how to embrace your future. How do people get a hold of your book, The Algorithmic Leader?
1: yeah it's where all books are these days on amazon.com so you can buy it as a a beautiful hardback which has been lovingly produced or you can read on your kindle or as you mentioned you can listen to it on itunes or on audible of course the downside of that is that you'll have my voice whispering into your ears for several hours but if you can stand that then um then have at
0: it well thank you very much it's really been a pleasure and uh You know, for those of you who are lucky enough to see Mike present, he is all over the globe. He is on the road, I think, 300 days a year presenting. But if you can catch his, uh, you know, pick up one of his videos or something like that and see him perform and uh, do his keynote, it really is a great message. So thanks again, Mike. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jim. It's been wonderful being on the show. Thanks for listening to Banking Transformed. If you enjoyed today's interview, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and listen in every Tuesday as we interview some of the world's foremost leaders. Also, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out our amazing research we are doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, the digital customer experience, and financial marketing on the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Bridget Coyne, and audio engineers, Sean Rule Hoffman, and Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, have a great week.
1: You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth Podcast